Good morning. It is truly such a joy to be here with you all this morning to worship the Lord together. As Tony said, my name is TJ. I'm one of the leaders of the music ministry here at Freshwater, and I am being trained up in eldership by Tony and JT. A significant portion of the role of elder or pastor, as we believe, is preaching the word of God. So I am blessed enough to be able to preach a sermon every once in a while as well. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And today we'll be, we'll be focusing on verses 12 and 13. That is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I'll give you a minute to turn there or scroll there if you're using the digital version. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you were here last week, you'll remember that our passage last week began similarly with the word therefore, just like we have here today. Um, this, this word therefore, what it means is Paul is laying out a point by point argument. He's using the ideas from his previous statements to develop his next thought or to put it in a fun way. Nice. Um, thank you. A big thanks to the production team. Again, I think we talked about this last week. You only notice them when something goes wrong. So, uh, love you guys. Um, so, uh, yeah, so uh, to put it a fun way, uh, when we see the word therefore, we want to find out what it's there for. Um, as most of you know, we've, we've been in a series on the book of Philippians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. For the past month or so, we have been looking deeply at the first 11 verses of chapter 2. In these 11 verses, we see what we are calling the, the heart of the letter to the Philippians, and this, is, this passage is the reason we call this series Divine Humility. In verses 1 through 5, Paul tells the church to have the mindset of Christ. Then in verses 6 through 11, he explains what that mindset is in the form of an ancient hymn or a song. And this song paints a picture for us of our God doing things that people of this age thought no deity could or would ever do. This humility is nothing short of divine. But don't take my word for it. Uh, let's take a look back at the beginning of Philippians 2 to see what he's talking about. So this is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 13. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, because of all of that, knowing that Christ went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and God elevated him back up to the highest of highs once again, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, pause here. Because the next word is the word for. And when we see that word, we know that Paul is giving us some reasoning for the statement he just made. So this this statement of, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, is being informed by statements on both sides. The word therefore shows us that what came before is supporting information. And then the word for in verse 13 shows us that what comes after is also supporting information. So because what we see in verses 1 through 11, obey and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. At first glance, these two ideas can seem somewhat opposed to one another. Honestly, it even seems a bit jarring, kind of out of the blue. Paul can be quoted in this letter alone saying things like, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, and your salvation is from God, and it has been granted to you to believe in him. Paul has indicated multiple times in this letter that salvation is from God let alone all the other letters he wrote with with the same idea. We know that Paul believes that we cannot attain our own salvation through obedience alone, right? So, So why does he say this? What's going on here? Work out your own salvation? Who is this guy? And what did he what did he do with Paul? Work out my own salvation? And we don't, we don't even have the comfort here of being able to do any mental gymnastics and, and try to mess with the terms here. This phrase, work out, is translated from the Greek word, katagatsomai. It's most often translated, perform, accomplish, achieve, or in the case of Romans 5.3, produce. Um, in the same helping hands portion of the church app, um, my wife has uh, worked with the production team to, to get the passages here in, in the church app as well, so you don't have to flip forever, so I can kind of go a little bit quicker, because <laughs> there's a lot to cover here. Um, so you can flip through the Bible if you like to Romans 5.3, or you can look at a list of the passages I'm going to use today here in the church app in the Helping Hands Center. So Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That word produces is the same word as we see for work out. So lest we are tempted to suggest that Philippians 2.12 is saying to contemplate our salvation or to consider it, uh, that's, not, that's not what this word means. Suffering does not think about endurance. Uh, suffering does not contemplate endurance. It, it produces it. It generates it. And this word Salvation, that we see next, is from the Greek word soteria, and this 
This word is even more definitive. It's, it's always, without fail, a reference to salvation and deliverance. So Paul is telling this church to produce their own salvation. But they're a church. This is a, this is a group of Christians. They've already been saved. How, how can they produce their own salvation? What gives? What is this? So if you like to take notes... Here's the outline for the morning. So what we need to understand is why Paul would tell this church to produce their own salvation in verse 12, using the reasoning from verses 1 through 11 and also verse 13. How, how does the humility of Jesus inform Paul's understanding of our salvation? And what role does God play in it? What role do we play in it? I believe we can combine Paul's thoughts on these matters into three main categories. Number one, God is at work in us to make our works align to his pleasure. Number two, God is at work in us to align our will to his pleasure. And number three, by way of these first two points, by way of those first two transformations, God enables us to participate in our own salvation in some way. And for this reason, we get to and we must participate in our own salvation. So how does God enable our works to bring him pleasure? Verse 13 says that it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. How, how does he do that? I'd like to bring our attention to the word obey as we find it in verse 12. Paul says to the Philippian church, as you have always obeyed. But this is not the first time in this letter that he has introduced the concept or the idea of obedience. <clears throat> There's a reason this passage begins with the word therefore. Early, earlier in this chapter, what we see is Paul gives an indication of how Jesus gave us an example of how to act. There are many of us that want to pull practical purpose from this chapter. We ask ourselves questions like, how can I be more like Jesus in this way? Or how does Jesus' example change what I think and do? And, and I think we should think this way in general, that this is not at all a bad instinct. This is a good thing. But as we do this, we should also remember this. We should look to Jesus as an example of holiness, but that, that doesn't mean we can or get to do all the things that Jesus does. Jesus rightly receives worship. Jesus knows the hearts of all men. Jesus is the image of all creation. Jesus died to pay the price for sin. Jesus intercedes to the Father on behalf of all the saints and has the name above all names. We have no right or ability or claim to any of these things. Jesus should absolutely be our measurement for holiness, he is the only perfect human, and he is also God. To that end, if you will, we don't, we don't have the same starting point in our pursuit of humility. Let's look at Philippians 2, 6 through 8 again. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, as I try to make this work with me. Nope, it just won't. 
I'm going to duck down here for the rest of the sermon. Um, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Though he was in the form of God, that, that doesn't apply to us. We have never been in the form of God. We were made in the image of God, yes, but this is, this is different. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And here's where we come in, right here. We haven't been able to identify with any of this until this point. We have, we have never emptied ourselves of divinity or descended from godhood to humanity. We've only ever been human. Paul continues in verse 8. And being found in human form, here's, this is us too, he humbled himself to what? He humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient. To the point of, obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus has many steps before he reaches a point where we begin. He was in every way equal to God. And in some ways he gave that up. He was the physical and tangible embodiment of God's glory without limit. And he gave that up. He had a position in which he had no obligation to serve anyone. And he gave that up. He became like us. He didn't start that way, but we did. And Paul sees that. We, we cannot hope to fully emulate Christ's humility on our own. We didn't even have the same starting point. Thanks. Appreciate it. Pit stop. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we didn't even have the same starting point. So how can we hope to fully have the mind of someone who had humility we can't even fully understand? We can't fully do all the things that he did, but we can take his approach and try to emulate it. And what is that approach? To humble himself and obey God so we humble ourselves and obey God. And Paul is applauding the Philippian church for having always obeyed. That's an incredible track record. Of course, we know that these people have sinned. Paul is simply referring to their longtime consistency in the same way as he said in chapter one that he's grateful from, or for their partnership, quote unquote, for, from the first day until now. He doesn't mean that the Philippian church was there in the Garden of Eden obeying God and doing everything perfectly for thousands of years. Um, he's, he's really, he's speaking of their consistency from the day he came to them and taught them the gospel. And it's not, it's not even perfect consistency. In chapter four, Paul calls a couple of people out by name who are in the middle of a superfluous disagreement. But on the whole, Paul is recognizing the Philippian church for their general spirit of obedience. But in verse 13, he then turns around and gives credit where credit is due. He says, as you have always obeyed, keep it up, because God is at work in you to ensure that you will and work for his good pleasure. So this obedience is something more, something more powerful, something more incredible than white knuckle discipline. It's, it's not a group of people who are just trying super hard not to sin. And how do we know this? 
Jesus' sinlessness is not directly mentioned in this hymn in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Now, was Jesus sinless? Yes, absolutely, of course he was. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, Jesus knew no sin. But this hymn takes it a step further. Not only did Jesus not do anything wrong, he did also everything right, and then some. Jesus extended his humility to obedience to the furthest degree. He, he obeyed God until it literally killed him. And to what end? For what purpose? For our salvation? Yes. Ultimately, for God's good pleasure. But what does this have to do with the obedience of the Philippian church? Paul, Paul seems to believe that this obedience has been gifted to them in one way or another. In chapter one of this letter, Philippians chapter one, Paul has already hinted at this gift of obedience. In Philippians chapter one, verses three through seven, just turn back a page, Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's that obedience again, but he continues. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he congratulates the church on their obedience and their partnership, but then immediately gives God the credit in the very same breath. Then once again, he gives God the credit before he mentions obedience for the first time in verse five of chapter two. Paul encourages the Philippian church to have this mind among them, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. That is to say that this obedience is theirs, but only because Jesus had it first and has enabled them to have it. And that phrase, have this mind, is one that means more than thinking about it. He's basically telling them to get a new brain, get a new understanding, have a new mindset. But how? How can, how can we do this? How can they do that? And that brings us to point number two. God is at work in us to align our will to his pleasure. What does that mean? It means that God's work in you is actively changing what you want. If God is working in you, at some point, you will begin to want what God wants. It stands to reason that if we are to make any choice at all as human beings, we must, at least in some way, want to do the thing we choose to do. Now, I'm not saying that we are incapable of doing things we also want to avoid doing, right? We, we make those choices all the time. We wake up early, we work out, we help the kids when they're screaming, you know, we go to work, we do the dishes. So you might be thinking to yourself right now, I do stuff I don't want to do all the time. What's this guy talking about? Either he's crazy or has the cushiest life of all time and I kind of hate him now. Um, but I promise it's important because I want to make an important distinction here. You do want to do the, all those things. Kind of. At the very least, you want the outcome of doing those things. And I know we use the phrase, I don't want to do that, to kind of refer to this idea, and that's fine. I'm not going to fight you on that. But, but here's the truth. 
you wouldn't make the choice to do these things, any of those things, if you didn't find there to be any benefit in doing them. You just simultaneously also want to avoid doing them. Working out hurts. My bed is comfy. The kids are annoying me right now. I want a vacation. There are plenty of reasons to want to avoid doing things. But what happens when a human being makes a choice is that they find what they are choosing to do as more having a more desirable outcome than any alternative choices they could have made in that moment. In short, our desire or our will is the basis of every human choice. Now, the reason I bring this up is that what I think we're looking at is Paul's thesis for how powerful, true, how truly powerful the work of God is in our life. Why has the Philippian church always obeyed? How can they hope to have the mind of Christ? How can Paul tell them at the end of Philippians 1 to stand firm in one spirit and have one mind? Paul's conclusion is that God is at work in them. Yes, to work for God's pleasure, but also even to will for it. God is working in them and in us, church, to want to do what pleases God. And I don't want to gloss over this because we hear people talk about this often in some way, right? If, if I have any patience at all, it's only because of Jesus. Or I used to be a mean person, but Jesus has helped me be more kind. Or even I wanted to cuss him out, but, you know, I thought better of it because I'm a Christian. And you know what? It, it, do, it really does work that way. These are, these are all good things. And yes and amen. These are all certainly examples of how Christ impacts our will. But what Paul is communicating here is something of a much larger scope. Remember that in Jesus' track to humility, our starting point is obedience being found in human form. We are obedient. And just how obedient are we talking? We're talking about obedience to the point of death. This is the mind we are to have in Christ. We are to be obedient to the point of death. And how could we possibly want to do that? How could we want to subject ourselves to that? When we, when we deliberate in our minds about choices and decisions we make, there's always a reason to do the thing we choose to do. But what reason is there that could be so important or weighty as to outweigh the cost of the Christian life that Paul has outlined that believers should strive for? I don't want to work out, but I like the idea of losing weight or gaining muscle more than I dislike the pain of working out, so I'll work out. I don't want to wake up early, but I like keeping my job more than I dislike getting out of my bed, so I get up early. I don't want to submit in obedience to the point of death and potentially lose everything I hold dear in my life, but, but what? What is there that could possibly change that? And here Paul answers this question in a way he answers many questions, but God. God works in us to want his pleasure with more fervor than we could want anything else, even our very lives. 
And these transformations of our will and of our works will always result in point number three. By way of these transformations, God enables us to participate in our own salvation. And for this reason, we get to, and therefore must, participate in our own salvation. And if I, if I were in the seats right now, I'd, honestly, I'd be nervous. <laughs> really, I would. Uh, because this idea is kind of a loaded one, right? Um, if we rightly understand our role in salvation, it brings joy, love, strength, peace, rest in the power of Christ. But when people get this wrong, it results in pompous, self-righteous Pharisees, nonsensical narcissists who call themselves apostles, angry, politically obsessed power mongers, wimpy, passive shells of people who celebrate grace as they close their Bibles forever as soon as they feel like they're safe from hell. And I know that's strong, but really if you've seen anybody like that, it's probably because they're missing this point right here. They just don't get how these two things work together. So let's define the terms. <laughs> it's important. How are we saved? We all as human beings have sinned against the holy God. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we cannot hope to receive anything but eternal death as a result of this sin. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. That means that everyone who sins has earned eternal death. And all have sinned, so all have earned eternal death. There's a tendency amongst human beings to assume that if we do more quote-unquote good deeds than quote-unquote bad deeds, that we can prove that we deserve God's grace. This is not so. James 2.10 says it this way. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. I've never met a person like this, but if somehow your track record was 99.9% holiness, 99.9% .9 good deeds, that is not enough to save you. The only hope one has to escape eternal death brought about by the wrath of God is to have a 100% record of sinlessness, and then a 100% record of holiness. So where does Paul get the audacity to say that we could possibly work out, produce our own salvation? How can we hope to erase the past? We've already blown it. It's done. We have no hope. Here's the idea. We must lean heavily on the therefore in verse 12 and the four in verse 13 to see what Paul's actual claim is. Remember, Paul is writing this to a group of Christians. This is a church in Philippi. They've already been saved. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that JT spoke of this recurring biblical idea of already, but not yet. That shows up so many times in the scripture. This idea that we have been made positionally righteous by the sacrifice of Christ, we are sanctified. Christians, we are already saved. But we still have to deal with sin. 
We still have to feel the impact of death, of loss, of pain. We have to wrestle with the impurities of our situation. To that end, we are clearly not fully saved yet. We have been delivered from hell and slavery to sin, but we are still affected by the flesh and sin. Already saved, not yet saved. This is our station as Christians in a fallen world. So what does that mean for us? What's our, what's our role here? What do we do? Here's what we know. Only God can relinquish us from the slavery of sin and bring us into the fold of his righteousness and salvation. We can't have done that ourselves. We could not have done that. But we are also tasked with putting our own sin to death and fulfilling the work that God has done and is doing in our lives. So we're told to work out our own salvation knowing that we cannot possibly hope to work out our own salvation. Is that right? We don't have the authority or power to do that, right? Kind of. I'm going to give an example that honestly really fails to fully capture uh, the fullness of this, this reality, but hopefully it gets us a little bit closer to what is true. Most of us has heard this famous quote from the play Hamlet by William Shakespeare. Here's a very short excerpt from that show. The character Hamlet famously says, to be or not to be, that is the question. Speaking of questions, my question is this, who said that? Well, Hamlet, but wouldn't, more realistically, wouldn't it be more correct to ascribe the quote to William Shakespeare? I mean, but if we read the books and watch the play, we know that Hamlet is saying it, but also, I mean, we could go back and forth on this forever, right? The point is, Hamlet said it, yes, but Hamlet only said it because Shakespeare decided he would, or if you will, he enabled him to. And our salvation comes to us in a similar way. We are saved by God from sin unto good works. And this good works portion is a necessary part of our salvation, but they can't be credited to us. We are to perform them, but we cannot claim the credit for them. In fact, it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. But even though we know these works don't come from us, we must participate in them, as it is the pleasure of God that dictates that we do so. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <laughs> and here's, here's where we see the most clear picture of how we participate in our salvation. By being transformed in our very will, our works are likewise transformed in this transformation of the will, we find it results in a transformation of our works. And by these transformative works, God enables us to then participate in our salvation by enacting the works that God has prepared for us to do in his good pleasure by his perfect will. 
And here's a good practice I always like to do when I study the Bible. Whenever there's an idea we come across or we're seeing for the first time or we're trying to wrap our minds around or prove or disprove or whatever, a good practice is to try and find out if that idea shows up anywhere else in Scripture. So I went through the other letters of Paul to see if this is just a one-off idea or not, to see where it lines up. But I'm going to read some passages here. Let's see if, if these line up with what Paul is trying to communicate in today's passage in Philippians. Be listening for these three ideas we discussed. God works in us to make our, our works for God's pleasure. God works in us to make us will for God's pleasure. And now we are then, therefore, accountable to participate in our salvation. This is Romans 8, 3 through 11. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh cannot, or the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Galatians 5, 16 through 24. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages (coughs) he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. <coughs> and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. (coughs) So what we have here is not a unique teaching from Paul in Philippians. This is a central aspect of Paul's message to the early church at large. If we take away anything from this sermon today, let it be this. These two ideas of God being the active driving force in our salvation and us, by his power, somehow becoming willing partners to that salvation cannot be separated. Do we choose God? Do we have the ability to please him with our works? Can we be good representatives of the gospel and live lives worthy of it? Yes, we can. But only because it is God who works in us to do such things. So we must bow in reverence to the almighty God and build our faith and good works with fear and trembling, knowing that without God, we would still be hostile to him. And then on the other side of the coin, does our salvation depend on God alone? Are we saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone? Yes, amen, we are. We did nothing to deserve this salvation. And God works in us to have his will and works. But because of this, we have been saved unto good works, which we must commit to with fear and trembling, knowing we work for the Lord. We must respond to God's gift of salvation By becoming willing participants in it, the truth is in the tension. We are already saved. We are not yet saved. Our salvation in no way depends on us, and we are called to work it out. We were dead in our sin, and God took our sin away so we could put our sin to death. The truth is in the tension. As for practicality, this passage very well speaks for itself. What I hope we can do as a church is understand our role in salvation. We must recognize that the Lord saved an undeserving people. Our works were evil works. Our will was to serve the flesh. We were hostile to God, but he saved us. And he is continuing to save us. And he is working in us to will and work for his good pleasure. And our response has to be to will and work for his good pleasure. This is the the method that God in his steadfast love chose to redeem his people. He could have just saved us by plucking us from the earth and taking us straight to heaven. But 
he chose to enact our salvation through good works, in a way, our good works, which he prepared for us beforehand. We must take this seriously. How seriously? To the point of fear and trembling. At our church, we, we will not preach a works-based salvation that suggests we can somehow break free from our own sinfulness to choose the will and the work of God's good pleasure and earn heaven on our own merit. It can't be done. And we will also not preach a salvation that doesn't lead to good works. Faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. God's work in people builds to good works. If you don't do good works all the time, who does, right? <laughs> but if you never do good works and you have no desire to, and that doesn't pain you, and it doesn't move you to remorse, you should honestly ask yourself if God is working in you because his work always ends in the will and work for his good pleasure. I am not hoping to frighten people. In fact, I would be thrilled if everyone here, after reflecting on their lives and on the scripture, thought, yes, God is bringing me to good works, and hey, I want to do what he wants. But I'm not naive. I would be thrilled if everyone felt that way, and I would also be incredibly shocked. There are moments in which each of us fail. I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have to think back very far to the last time I was affected by sin. Uh, I don't have to get out my calendar to remember when I last failed to fully trust the Lord and obey him perfectly. And even though I've been going on about how we're participating in our own salvation, I don't mean that we are attaining perfection on our own or even in this lifetime. Paul says later on in this letter in Philippians 3, 9 through 13 that he wants to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that my, by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, and here's, here's another occurrence of the same idea. I press on to make it my own. I work out my own salvation because Christ Jesus has made me his own. <laughs> I, I work, I have to do this, I'm working because the work's already been done. <laughs> Paul, who might be the most assured Christian ever to live, knows he's not perfect but he strives to get closer to perfection step by step and he's, he's confident in his salvation. <laughs> the true mark of salvation, the thing we need to work out with fear and trembling is do we find God to be worth following and do we find him to be worth loving? And if you truly find him worth loving and following, what follows is you love him and follow him. If you truly find that to be the most beneficial thing to do, you do it. And in this way, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling while still walking in assurance. 
For those of us who are in Christ, God has already saved you. In the past, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, shaping and building our faith, he is working for our salvation in the present. And I am sure of this, he is faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus in the future. For those of you who are uncertain, hear this. R.C. Sproul was a theologian, a teacher, a pastor who was asked one day how to give assurance to people of their salvation. In other words, how can we know if we're saved? He said, when people ask me how can I know if I'm saved, I ask them, do you love the biblical Jesus Christ perfectly? And almost every time they'll say, no, no I don't. And then I ask them, okay, do you love him as much as you should love him? Of course, it stands to reason if they answered no to the first question, they must answer no to the second. But then I ask them, do you love him at all? And if they answer yes to this, I respond to them, how can you possibly have any affection for Jesus at all unless you are born of the Holy Spirit? In fear and trembling, we acknowledge we do not love the Lord as much as we should. We do not love him perfectly. But in assurance, we know that if we love him at all, it's because God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he who began a good work in us is faithful to carry it to completion. And our role in that is to pray for God's work to continue with the faith that truly believes that it will. And to obey we are to seek the good works that God has given for us to do. We are to be looking for ways to kill sin, to actively put it to death, and to love each other in humility. And we are to do these things because of our love for God and his will and his work and his pleasure. If you do not love Jesus at all, or if you are uncertain as to whether or not you do, or if you, do, or if you find that you do not want to love your neighbor or humbly serve them or if you want to pray about anything at all please come talk to me me and my wife and also Tony or anybody else who's going to be over there praying please come and talk to us church I love you may the word of God work in us to see him more rightly and for us to respond in love for who he is I'm so grateful that we get to work out our salvation together as we build each other up, hold each other accountable, love and serve each other, and worship the Lord as a church family for his glory and our gladness, thanking him for his work in us that enables us to do so. Let's pray.